America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, a great nation where there is great hullabaloo on the left. Everybody on the left seems to be getting ready for what is expected to be a very angry, perhaps even violent reaction tomorrow when the Supreme Court announces its final decision regarding Roe v. Wade and regarding the leaked decision. Is it going to be the same as the leaked decision? Probably very close. And will that mean, in fact, as a number of organizations, there's one called Jane's Revenge that have actually promised violence in response. Uh, that is going on at a time when the court handed down another decision this morning that has outraged the left. It is actually a decision uh, basically broadening the right to keep and bear arms, which, uh, lest we forget, is a constitutional right. Uh, basically, we'll explain what the decision really means. But it is a decision that I think most conservatives will applaud. It is reasonable. It makes sense. It uh, recognizes that when they say you have a right to keep and bear arms, the bear arms means, as Justice Thomas made clear, carrying arms into the public. doesn't mean you do it without restrictions. But uh, it does mean that you can do it if you clear a background check, if you apply for a special license, and you are a person of good character. Uh, what you don't need anymore in New York is to say that you have a special position or special danger that leads you to necessitate carrying a gun for your self-defense. Also, they're, they're doing the, the hearings are continuing today. It's going to be very dramatic. We are going to keep you up to date on them. Right now, uh, Liz Cheney is speaking with her opening statement. Let's go there right now. Make electoral slates and later to transmit those materially false documents to federal officials, again as part of his planning for January 6th. We have seen how President Trump persuaded tens of thousands of his supporters to travel to Washington, D.C. for January 6th. And we will see in far more detail how the President's rally and march to the Capitol were organized and choreographed. As you can tell, these efforts were not some minor or ad hoc enterprise concocted overnight. Each required planning and coordination. Some required significant funding. All of them were overseen by President Trump. And much more information will be presented soon regarding the President's statements and actions on January 6th. Today, as Chairman Thompson indicated, we turn to yet another element of the President's effort to overturn the 2020 election, this one involving the Department of Justice. A key focus of our hearing today will be a draft letter that our witnesses here today refused to sign. This letter was written by Mr. Jeff Clark with another Department of Justice lawyer, Ken Klukowski, and the letter was to be sent to the leadership of the Georgia State Legislature. Other versions of the letter were intended for other states. Neither Mr. Clark nor Mr. Klukowski had any evidence of widespread election fraud. But they were quite aware of what Mr. Trump wanted the department to do. Jeff Clark 
met privately with President Trump and others in the White House and agreed to assist the President without telling the le senior leadership of the department who oversaw him. As you will see, this letter claims that the U.S. Department of Justice's investigations have, quote, identified significant concerns that may have impacted the outcome of the election in multiple states, including the state of Georgia. In fact, Donald Trump knew this was a lie. The Department of Justice had already informed the President of the United States repeatedly that its investigations had found no fraud sufficient to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The letter also said this, quote, in light of these developments, the department recommends that the Georgia General Assembly should convene in special session, end quote, and consider approving a new slate of electors. And it indicates that a separate, quote, fake slate of electors supporting Donald Trump has already been transmitted to Washington, D.C. For those of you who have been watching these hearings, the language of this draft Justice Department letter will sound very familiar. The text is similar to what we have seen from John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, both of whom were coordinating with President Trump to overturn the 2020 election. When one of our witnesses today, Mr. Donahue, first saw this draft letter, he wrote this, quote, this would be a grave step for the department to take and it could have tremendous constitutional, political, and social ramifications for the country, end quote. This committee agrees. Had this letter been released on official Department of Justice letterhead, it would have falsely informed all Americans, including those who might be inclined to come to Washington on January 6th, that President Trump's election fraud allegations were likely very real. Here is another observation about this letter. Look at the signature line. It was written by Jeff Clark and Mr. Klukowski, not just for Clark's signature, but also for our witnesses today, Jeff Rosen and Richard Donahue. When it became clear that neither Mr. Rosen nor Mr. Donahue would sign this letter, President Trump's plan necessarily changed. As you will hear today, Donald Trump offered Mr. Clark the job of acting attorney general, replacing Mr. Rosen with the understanding that Clark would send this letter to Georgia and other states and take other actions the president requested. One other point. Millions of Americans have seen the testimony of Attorney General Barr before this committee. At one point in his deposition, the former Attorney General was asked why he authorized the Department of Justice to investigate fraud in the 2020 election at all. Why not just follow the regular course of action and let the investigations occur much later in time, after January 6th? Here's what he said. Felt the responsible thing to do was to be, to be in a position uh, to have a view as to whether or not there was fraud. And frankly, I think the fact that I put myself in the position that I could say that we had looked at this and didn't think there was fraud, was really important to moving things forward. Uh, and I, I sort of shudder to think what the situation would have been if the, if the position of the department was, we're not even looking at this until after Biden's in office. I'm not sure we would have had a transition at all. I want to thank each of our witnesses before us today. 
for your role in addressing okay. and rebutting the Talking false... Talking about the witnesses, I believe the first one up will be Jeffrey Rosen, uh, who uh, is a remarkable guy, by the way, and he's been active in Republican politics his whole life. He is a strong conservative. He uh, served in the Bush administration. He served before in the Trump administration, the Department of Transportation. And uh, then he was appointed to be the uh, the uh, deputy attorney general, the same position. He took the job that Rod Rosenstein, if you remember him, had had at one point. And the difficulty here, uh, if as it comes out, is that he actually changed American history because he refused to sign this letter that Trump had gotten an underling, someone lower standing in the Department of Justice, because this was a time right after Bill Barr had resigned and Rosenstein had taken over as acting attorney general. Uh, his point of view on what Trump told him to do will be probably the most dramatic and most significant aspect of these hearings so far, so we will keep track of that. We'll also talk about the ridiculous overreaction of the governor of New York to the Supreme Court decision today on uh, concealed carry rights in uh, New York. The court held for those rights as part of the Second Amendment. That and much more, a significant vote on guns in the U.S. Senate, a very different position in the U.S. House. We'll bring you up to date on all of it on the Medved Show. Jeffrey Rosen steps up, he, uh, we will try to go to the hearing because, again, as some of the drama here involving the Department of Justice, and uh, the, the Department of Justice is very different from the job of White House counsel because when you're White House counsel, uh, Pat Cipollone is one of the people who was White House counsel for a while to uh, President Trump. Don McGahn was White House counsel beforehand to President Trump. He's had a bunch of them. But that means, yes, you're the president's lawyer. You're supposed to represent him. But the Department of Justice does not. The attorney general is not, cannot be the president's uh, lawyer. That's why even people who are big John Kennedy fans think it was wildly inappropriate, and it was, for him to appoint his brother as Attorney General of the United States. It wasn't that Bobby Kennedy wasn't smart, it wasn't that he wasn't qualified, it wasn't that he didn't have a distinguished legal background and etc. He had helped expose some of the corruption in, in labor unions, particularly the Teamsters, before he became Attorney General. The problem was that of all the cabinet positions, the Attorney General is the chief law enforcement officer of the federal government and there always has to be a hands-off kind of relationship with the president that's why uh, basically Jeff Sessions if you remember Trump's first attorney general he uh, recused himself from getting involved in the uh, Russia investigation which Robert Mueller ultimately undertook 
Jeff Sessions refused to get involved because he had, had just been appointed by President Trump. And he had also uh, testified incorrectly before to a, the Senate Judiciary Committee about uh, whether or not he had spoken to any Russian officials. He had forgotten. I think it was probably sincere that he had forgotten about it. He had. And it was a social thing. It wasn't a huge deal. But uh, then Jeff Sessions was fired by President Trump. He brought in Bill Barr, who was very supportive, as supportive as one can be while following the law and actually following the traditions of the Justice Department. But what you had here in the very last stages, again, for people who were fascinated by Watergate uh, comparisons, the Saturday Night Massacre... And it, it it was called that because it happened when news is generally takes a holiday on Saturday night. Uh, the president of the United States had a an independent counsel, Archibald Cox, who was a fairly widely respected uh, scholar and uh, lawyer, law teacher at, at Harvard. And uh, Archibald Cox had been appointed an independent counsel, and he was supposed to be looking at this Watergate burglary and all the information that came from it. And Nixon fired him. And uh, and then uh, after Nixon fired him, the Attorney General of the United States, whose name was Elliot Richardson, uh, he resigned. And then after he resigned, the deputy attorney general, who I believe was Bill Ruckelshaus at the time, a Washingtonian, he resigned. And so you had the two top people in the Justice Department and the independent counsel all fired. And uh, the only one that uh, President uh, Nixon could get to administer the final dismissal of Archibald Cox was the Solicitor General of the United States, whose name was Robert Bork. So that's all ancient history, but that idea of keeping to on firing people in the Justice Department until you get one who would be pliable enough to do your bidding, that was what Trump was trying to do if firing Jeffrey Rosen taking his resignation, getting him to leave because he refused to sign this letter, and then uh, getting rid of uh, Mr. Donahue, who was also part of the... Uh, uh, Donahue was the former acting deputy attorney general. And uh, then there's also have Stephen Engel is going to be testifying today, who was the former assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel. When Jeffrey Rosen gets up, I, th I think that uh, we should go to it. I, again, uh, he is uh, somebody who is a terrific communicator, and I think that his testimony is going to be deeply significant. Okay, let's go back for just a moment to the Supreme Court decision that was handed out today. It's known as the Bruin case. That's not Bruin like bear. It's Bruin, B-R-U-E-N. And it's a case that basically says that, okay, they have a concealed carry law in New York, and it's hard to get a concealed carry permit. Many other states, it's easy to get a concealed carry permit. By the way, the idea that getting concealed carry permits actually, uh, and making that kind of permit easily accessible, that that increases crime, 
it's counterindicated. There's no evidence at all that that is the case. But in New York, it's very tough to get a concealed carry permit because you have to show not only that you are, number one, of good moral character, but you have to show that uh, you have a special need to use that privilege. And what the decision uh, said from uh, Justice Thomas, basically, and it made a very good point, look, we don't talk about Second Amendment privileges. We talk about Second Amendment rights. And if you have a right to keep and bear arms, it doesn't mean that everybody does, but it means that you don't need to show that you have a special need to carry a gun in public places if you have shown that you're a person of good moral character. If you're a felon, forget it. If you're 15, forget it. Uh, but uh, and that's still those extensions still apply. But the governor of New York, who's running for re-election and is highly favored, well, first the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, has already exploded over this decision today. Here is the vice president uh, clip eight. We, the president, myself, many of us are deeply concerned and troubled by the Supreme Court's ruling today. Um, it. It, I believe, defies common sense and um, the Constitution of the United States. Okay, how does it defy the Constitution of the United States? How outrageous that is. And there's more from Governor Kathy Hochul. Today, Washington is on tender hooks. everyone waiting for the one of the most important Supreme Court decisions ever. And I think it is that because it restores, if it is the decision that everyone expects, it restores the idea of the court not as a legislative body but a judicial one. Uh, will this entire question of Trump and the election and charges of fraud, will that eventually make it to the Supreme Court? It looks more and more possible. Heaven help us all. We will be right back on the Medved Show. The greatest show on God's green earth. Greener. It's got to be nice and cool. Nice and cool. The Michael Medved Show. Show the uh, uh, the way that the New York Times uh, are actually uh, pardon me it is the Wall Street Journal uh, summarizes the uh, decision by the Supreme Court that is causing all the controversy today that the Vice President just said that she and the President were deeply concerned and troubled by the Supreme Court's ruling today and uh, she believes the Supreme Court's ruling violates the US Constitution when it's based on the actual letter and originalism uh, text and the uh, and part of what what originalism means is not only that you look for the text you look what the document actually says you look on the way those words were understood at the time. In other words, to say, well, no, 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 they understood it wrong. 
in 1789, because this is the Bill of Rights we're talking about, not the Constitution itself, um, the Supreme Court struck down New York's state system for issuing concealed weapons permits, ruling that the century-old law requiring that applicants demonstrate proper cause and good moral character violates the Second Amendment. The 6-3 to three decision, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, marks the widest expansion of gun rights since 2010 when the court applied nationwide a 2008 ruling establishing an individual right of armed self-defense within the home. It put in question similar laws in at least eight other states in the District of Columbia where authorities hold substantial discretion over issuing concealed weapons permits. Elected officials in New York said they were worried about the implications of the court ruling against the permitting system. New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a former police captain, said it would make policing more difficult if more people were allowed to carry guns. This is not the wild, wild west, he said earlier this month. Uh, if um, you have a document which is called the Bill of Rights, it's the Second Amendment to the Constitution, it was important to the founders, and the document actually echoes English law that had been established hundreds of years before using the phrase the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And this is a point that uh, Justice Thomas makes. Okay, keep arms, we understand. That's to have a gun in your house to protect yourself against intruders. But to bear arms means you get to carry them around. And it doesn't mean without limit. And by the way, uh, Justice Alito in his concurrence that he wrote with Justice Thomas is exactly right that uh, this in no way impacts the idea that there are locations where arms are barred. For instance, schools. Uh, most schools are gun-free zones in most parts of the country. People are arguing about that. And, of course, in Ohio, they just passed a bill uh, allowing uh, teachers with uh, a certain amount of training, they're supposed to get 24 hours of training, uh, if they do, allowing teachers to take arms into schools, so no more gun-free zones. However, this uh, ruling by the court in no way interferes with uh, the existing protections that people may feel if they legislate and they decide to put through gun-free zones, which I don't think is a particularly effective. I mean, somebody who's getting ready to kill himself and to kill other people is not going to pay attention necessarily to the idea that there's a sign on the school that said this is a gun-free zone. In any event, the, the point about all of this is that coming in the midst of the passage of the most significant gun compromise and its legislation strongly endorsed today by the Wall Street Journal. They had a vote today on the filibuster to try to stop that gun reform bill. And the bill passed. I mean, it hasn't passed its final passage, but this filibuster was cut off. It was moved forward with 65 votes, with 15 Republicans now. Who was the extra Republican who signed on? was actually uh, the uh, 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 Pat Toomey, the s senior senator from Pennsylvania, uh, who, um, who actually, yes, he, he had been in favor of this kind of reform for a long time. 
and he just hadn't voted in the previous vote. So now you have 15 Republicans, which is more than they need to get this through. And uh, and yet it, there is a controversy about guarding the House where the House leaders have uh, also said, the House leaders meaning Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, and the minority whip Steve Scalise of Louisiana, and uh, Elise Stefanik, who had replaced Liz Cheney as the head of the Republican con- conference. They all are voting against the bill. But frankly, it doesn't matter because they just need a majority in the House of Representatives. And the Democrats are still the majority, even though they're not expected to be after November 3rd or actually after January when they get inaugurated with the new Congress. Uh, Meanwhile, Jeffrey Rosen, the former acting attorney general, and he was only acting attorney general for a little while, but he talks about how during that period – he uh, he met with President Trump virtually every day. So this is not a question that he didn't know what was going on. He knew exactly what was going on. Listen to this interchange where Rosen talks about how frequently the president uh, tried to speak with him about his favorite topic, election fraud. Uh, listen. December 23rd, January 3rd, the president either called me or met with me virtually every day with one or two exceptions like Christmas Day. Um, And before that, because uh, I had been announced that I would become the acting attorney general before the date I actually did, the president had asked that uh, Rich Donahue and I go over and meet with him, I believe, on December 15th as well. So after you had some of these meetings and conversations with the president, what things uh, did the president raise with you? So, so the common element of all of this was the president uh, expressing his dissatisfaction that the Justice Department, in his view, had not done enough to uh, investigate election fraud. But at different junctures, uh, other topics came up at different uh, uh, intervals. So at, at one point, he had raised the question of having a special of having Special counsel for election fraud. Uh, at a number of points, he raised uh, requests that I meet with his uh, campaign counsel, Mr. Giuliani. At one point, he raised the um, whether the Justice Department would file a lawsuit in the Supreme Court. At, at uh, a couple of junctures, there were questions about making public statements or about holding a press conference. Uh, uh, one of the later junctures uh, was this issue of sending a letter to state legislatures uh, in Georgia or other states. And um, so there were different things raised at different uh, parts of, uh, or different intervals, with the common theme being his dissatisfaction about what the Justice Department had done to uh, investigate election fraud. I will say that the Justice Department uh, declined all of those requests that I was just uh, referencing because we did not think that they were appropriate based on the facts and the law as we uh, understood them. 
Uh, the idea that they were not appropriate under the facts before he even became attorney general, while Bill Barr was still attorney general, he had made public statements, and several of them, saying that the Justice Department had investigated and they had found no evidence of election fraud. And given the fact that this is what the president wanted, the president is the guy who controls the future of your job. He's the guy who appointed you. If there were evidence, why would the Justice Department be covering it up? That's one of the things they're probing today. We'll get to more on The Medved Show. He is one of the most important forces we've had on this planet. My friend. Mike. On the Michael Medved show, uh, the uh, hearings going forward in Washington, the first two witnesses are uh, Jeffrey Rosen, former acting attorney general, and Richard Donahue, the former acting deputy attorney general, the number one and two people in the Justice Department during the last weeks of the Trump presidency after uh, Bill Barr had departed. Uh, Bill Barr also featured in uh, a lot of taped material uh, that uh, he provided to the committee. The, the amazing thing here is what their testimony indicates is that the, the president didn't have evidence, as he said repeatedly he did, of massive fraud and the most corrupt election in American history and the greatest crime of the century. He was saying all those things before the election even. And he was very, very insistent. He wanted the Justice Department not to conclude some massive investigation. He wanted the Justice Department to say that they agreed with the president that it was terribly corrupt. That was what he was asking for. In other words, he was asking them to lie. And I, I do think that uh, in terms of uh, corrupt practices and uh, one of the charges that might be made against President Trump is uh, the idea of a fraud against uh, the government. And he, when you listen to the testimony just uh, just moments ago, by Richard Donahue, former acting deputy attorney general. He's being questioned uh, by Adam Kinzinger, one of the two Republicans, along with Liz Cheney, on the committee. And uh, Donahue also has a background as a Republican office holder and a veteran of Washington. Uh, here's what he has to say about what the president wanted him and wanted the Justice Department to do. Listen. Let's take a, a look at another one of your notes. Uh, you also noted that Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. H how did the president respond to that, sir? He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican. So let's now put up the notes uh, where, you, where you quote the president. Uh, as you're speaking to that, he said, the president, the president said, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. So, Mr. Donahue, that's a direct quote from President Trump, correct? 
That's an exact quote from the president, yes. The next note shows that even the, even that the president kept pressing, even though he'd been told that there was no evidence of fraud, did the president keep saying that the department was, quote, obligated to tell people that this was an illegal, corrupt election? That's also an exact quote from the president, yes. Let me just uh, be clear. Did the department find any evidence to conclude that there was anything illegal or corrupt about the 2020 election? There were isolated instances of uh, fraud. None of them came close to calling into question the outcome of the election in any individual state. In any individual state. And, of course, Trump would have needed to overturn the uh, election in at least three states. Three states, even if they were the most uh, electoral college-rich states, if, if he had Georgia and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Uh, those are among the states, or uh, Georgia and Pennsylvania and Arizona. He, but he wouldn't have needed to overturn the election in all three. And when uh, the Congress voted, and they did have a vote, of both the House and the Senate uh, after the riots, after they cleared the Capitol building, and it was overwhelmingly rejected, the effort to get the Congress of the United States to overturn those election results. Uh, this is going to continue. And by the way, Richard Donahue, apparently the former acting deputy attorney general, he... Uh, he was celebrated for being one of those guys who comes into a meeting and takes copious notes. Those notes now are among the uh, most important pieces of evidence that um, are being used to try to reconstruct exactly what happened in terms of uh, promulgating this continued indictment of an election that all the Republican officials, the statewide officials, the federal officials, one of the computer experts, the leading computer expert at the Department of Homeland Security, Christopher Krebs, uh, all looked at the election intently and said that this was an unusually uh, more than average, uh, very clean, reasonable, well-documented election. And uh, meanwhile, there's this. This is also controversial and dramatic. Just happened. Uh, the uh, federal investigators descended on the home of Jeffrey Clark, a former Justice Department official. Uh, they did it in connection with the department's sprawling inquiry into efforts to overturn the 2020 election, according to people familiar with the matter. It remained unclear exactly what the investigators may have been looking for, but Mr. Clark was central to President Donald J. Trump's uh, unsuccessful effort in late 2020 to strong-arm the nation's top prosecutors into supporting his claims of election fraud. The law enforcement action at Mr. Clark's home in suburban Virginia came uh, just the day before the House committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol was poised to hold a hearing examining Mr. Trump's personal efforts to pressure the Justice Department after his election defeat. 
The hearing was expected to explore Mr. Clark's role in helping Mr. Trump bend the department to his will and ultimately help in a bid to persuade officials in several key swing states to change the outcome of their election results. Mr. Trump considered and then abandoned a plan in the days just before the January 6th attack to put Mr. Clark in charge of the Justice Department as acting attorney general. At the time, Mr. Clark was proposing to send a letter to state officials in Georgia and other states, falsely stating that the department had evidence that could lead Georgia to rescind the certification of Joseph B. Biden Jr.'s victory in that key swing state. One of the reasons that they are so uh, extraordinarily focused on trying to talk to Mr. Clark is because he apparently wrote that letter. Uh, This uh, email came in from Jeff in Tacoma, Washington. He says, the Bruin decision violates the original intent and the actual text of the Constitution. Nowhere does the text of the Constitution talk about a right to self-defense. The actual text does talk about a well-regulated militia. And the history at the time indicated the founders were happy with the militia being very well regulated. Uh, Jeff says, you can twist it all you want, but this is nothing but an activist decision that has nothing to do with the original intent of the Constitution or its drafters. Uh, if, If you take a look at the British origins of that phrase, the right to keep and bear arms, that was borrowed for the Second Amendment of the Constitution, it includes a right to carry guns. And uh, no one, the only idea of self-defense is um, that that was actually related to the Heller case because what that would have done would have been prevented people in Washington from Washington, uh, D.C. That was a, a law that had been established in Washington, D.C., prohibiting people to own uh, handguns and uh, and basically what justice and that was Justice Scalia when he was still alive who wrote that decision he said look the Second Amendment doesn't say was never intended to ban all gun regulation gun regulation is decent and reasonable but if it is the sweeping kind of regulation that says no one can buy a handgun when the handguns are primarily what people use for self-defense, that's where the self-defense idea comes in. And basically, what the uh, the law said in New York is you had to establish that you were using the gun that you would be carrying for self-defense, or you don't get a permit for it. And that's not an easy thing to establish, nor is that included in the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, words are stubborn things. Facts are stubborn things. And Jeff, honestly, this is a reasonable mainstream six to three decision and the law of this greatest nation on God's green earth.